So this morning's devotional will be by Paul Jones. Paul has recently experienced the great loss of his daughter, Candace, as uh, Sam mentioned on the first night. Candace was instrumental in changing Paul's heart from a business-focused mind to the mind of a spiritual father. And her work continues through Paul in a movement that is now called, uh, in many countries, One Million Strong. This is a ministry focused on drug-addicted young people. They provide counseling, guidance, and help both them and their families. I believe Paul will tell you a little bit more about his ministry. Paul and his wife Liz live in the city of Cape Town, but he advises businesses throughout South Africa. He's often called upon by key pastors within the country to provide spiritual guidance, help, and counsel counsel to them personally and their businesses and their ministries. We now invite Paul to come and share. Good morning. I uh, bring you greetings from probably the most beautiful city in the world, Cape Town. Is quite an exceptional place, and those of you who have been there, I'm sure will agree with me. Um, for those of you who haven't been there, never mind visiting a farm down the road, you're welcome to come to Cape Town. <laughs> <laughs> Can you hear me, brother? <laughs> I um, just want to say thank you for welcoming me. I um, really didn't think I was going to come, but... Uh, I felt I needed healing, and uh, I'm glad I came. Um, Before I, I don't know if I'm going to hold this together, so, um, but I'll do my best. Is uh, just before I get into the story, I just want to. There's four things that kind of like stand out for me as to why I'm here today. I, um, I myself have been a pastor. I. Studied at the Baptist Seminary and got a degree, cum laude. I don't know how that's possible, but I, <laughs> I do believe in God's grace. Uh, man, the Greek and the Hebrew. I think I became a parrot. <laughs> I still don't know Greek and Hebrew, but I tell you, I learned it like a parrot. Um, anyway, that was an interesting journey, and I ended up planting a church in Cape Town. Um, we started with 15 people, and today I think that church is probably the largest church in Cape Town. I think there's about 10,000 people called Common Ground. I, I had to hand the church over for it to become successful, though. Um, I think I ran out of patience being a pastor. Um, I, I wasn't the most uh, patient counselor, and so I felt it was time to go back into business, and I have no regrets. Uh, just just an, an interesting uh, point on that. When I decided to hand over the church, um, and the guy I handed it over to is still running the church today, 20 years. They celebrated 20 years last year. And, uh, you know, everybody would say, you can't, how can you leave the ministry? And my standard answer is, no, I'm not leaving the ministry. I just don't want to be a pastor. <laughs> I mean, like, you know. And, and God has been amazing. I think I received a prophetic word 
Um, and, and thanks for that yesterday. I was really encouraged because I was one of those, whenever I heard there was a prophetic word, I was looking for cover, you know, kind of like, not me, not me, don't prophesy over me, you know. And, uh, but God sent two prophets, and I had never traveled out of South Africa. And uh, two of them, I still have them, by the way, and the, pro- the prophetic word was that God would raise me up to transverse the nations. And uh, as a South African boy who had never been out of the country, my father never had money to send me anywhere because he was a Baptist minister for 53 years. Um, but God just, when I set up, the consulting business, I think I ended up, I've probably gone to about 30 countries and probably flown around the world about 20 times. I have no idea. I've lost count. But it's been an amazing journey, and God has honored his word in my life. And um, uh, I just really am thankful to him for that. But there's four reasons that I think I'm here today. Um. And the first was uh, when meeting with Doug. Where's Doug? Oh, he, I thought he'd run away because he knew I was up here. Um, I met Doug in Cape Town. And uh, yesterday, I think it was yesterday or the day before, he said, I've never met anybody who asks more questions than you, Paul. So I said, well, thank you, Doug. He says, and they were really, really good questions. So thank you for that, Doug. Um, and later, Doug introduced me to Sam. But I just felt a sense of purpose. I'd kind of like been in the wilderness. I'd handed over the church. When I'd handed over the church, I thought they'd allow me to attend. But the, the, the guy I handed over to one day phoned me up. He said, look, Paul, I really don't think you should be attending the church. So I was like, okay. Um, and to be fair to him, he was just really being honest. He said, I need to establish my leadership in the church. And while you're hanging around... Um, I don't think it's a good thing. So I took that as a compliment. So I was kicked out of my own church. Well, it was never mine in the first place. But I, when I met Sam, and I think the first time I met Sam, um, I fell in love with Sam's sense of humor. Uh, you know, yes, he had wisdom. Yes, there was depth. But we had a good laugh. In fact, I, my wife, please, she, Liz, she also asked me to send you her greetings. But I can honestly say I fell in love with my wife's sense of humor before her good-looking body and her pretty face and everything else. (laughs) Sorry, that's the carnal me. It happens every now and then. Um, I think the second thing that for me was wonderful was just the sense of humility that I experienced from Doug and from Sam. I am... we were talking with some younger guys last night at dinner, and I was saying to them, they should never take for granted what God is doing here. Because when we started off, I went from Baptist more into the charismatic flow, we didn't experience that same humility amongst the leaders amongst us. There was almost an arrogance. And maybe that should be an alarm bell that should be ringing for all of us, is that when God does something new, we have no no right to start becoming arrogant because it's not yours anyway. It's his. The third thing, and probably, this is probably in order of importance. The third thing was that I found out Sam enjoys good wine. I, um, 
Cape Town is a wonderful place, and we have absolutely wonderful wine. I was saying to Sam last night, we should set up a wine club for the, <laughs> for the group. <laughs> South African wines are relatively cheap. <laughs> so if you're interested in setting up a wine club <laughs> with a brethren, talk to me. <laughs> Every month you get delivered 12 bottles of wine, and you can taste new stuff. Sorry, I'm a business consultant. <laughs> It's ironic that somebody with a theological degree has made many, many people wealthy by doing business. I don't know where it comes from. I just haven't learned to make myself wealthy yet. (laughs) But that's typical of a consultant. And then more significantly and and more importantly, I, um, I have a particular... Maybe God leading, guiding, I don't know. But I have a particular interest in the theology of the kingdom of God. And in speaking with Sam, I felt there was a resonance around what the kingdom of God stands for and what it means. I feel it's one of the most neglected doctrines in the entire church. And there's a reason for that is because we substituted the doctrine of the kingdom of God for the doctrine of the kingdom of the church. And last year, I wrote a paper. I wrote this paper, and then I found out that last year was the, the, the title of the paper I, I love to write. So the title of the paper was called The Next Reformation? Question mark, Which I sent to Sam. I also sent it to uh, an author here in the U.S. by the name of Janet Hugberg, who wrote a book called The Critical Journey, a very interesting book on spiritual, our spiritual growth. And she published, she asked if she could publish it, and she did. And I, she sent me a letter. She didn't put my details on there, but she sent me a, a letter from uh, somebody, a, a pastor, a minister of the, what do you call, um, the Presbyterian, Episcopal, what are they called here? Something like that. And this guy was, he said, look, I'm 70 and I really enjoyed the article that you wrote on the kingdom of God. Uh, He said, but is this some new kind of a doctrine? (laughs) Somebody who's been a minister for 50 years is asking, is this doctrine of the kingdom of God a new doctrine? But I promise you, and this is not a criticism, this is just an observation, if you are attending a church or were attending a church for a long time, I would love to know how many really good sermons and teachings you received on the doctrine of the kingdom of God. Very, very few. And I do believe this that's happening here is maybe the start of the next reformation. When I wrote the article, I didn't realize that last year, was the 500th anniversary of, Martin, of, of, of Luther who nailed his thesis to the doors in Wittenberg um, Church. 500 years last year. And we all know that the Reformation was fantastic because it meant that you and I could have Bibles and read Bibles because previously we weren't allowed to do that. So that was great. The other thing that was great, it was the start of Protestantism. The Protestant movement. Prior to that, there was only one church, which was the Catholics. I believe that the next Reformation is going to be about governance and authority 
Because that's the one thing that never changed in the Reformation. It never changed the way governance took place because we didn't have a better model. And I'm still not sure if we do have a better model, but we're trying to find out what that better model looks like. Anyway, that's not why I'm here. Forgive me for throwing that in. I can't help myself. Uh, I want to tell you my story, Candace's story. And let me just say this. I stand here in all humility um, because this is not about Candace and it's not about me. And we've had this discussion. I, um, I think over the last couple of days, you guys can put up a photo of, of Candace. I've got a photo. That's Candace. Um, the little one is 18 months. Her name is Abigail. And Rachie is my other granddaughter who's four years old. We, all of us, need to find a purpose, a, a real reason for doing what we do in life. It's incredibly important because it's not just about doing something that feels right. In fact, often the thing that you've got to do maybe doesn't even feel right. In fact, sometimes the thing that we're called to do is incredibly, incredibly hard and lonely. So you've got to know that there's got to be a reason and a purpose because it's not like when you find what your reason and purpose is that every morning instead of an alarm clock, the angel of Gabriel arrives and says, hallelujah, hallelujah, and you wake up. It's the same painful alarm clock that goes mad in your head. In fact, sometimes the stuff that you're dealing with is so painful and so stressful that you wake up before the alarm clock arrives or wakes you up. Or maybe it's just God nudging you at four o'clock in the morning wanting to speak to you. So we need a reason and a purpose why we do what we do. And Candace in the last number of years has become my why, the reason I do what I do. There's a wonderful little YouTube clip by Simon Sinek which you can watch sometime in finding and why we need a why in our life. We all need a why. And yes, it's great to know that we have a why because Jesus loves us, this I know. But sometimes it's got to go even deeper than that. I thought of making notes and maybe doing a presentation, but I'm not in a position to do that, so... I'm just going to tell you a story. At the age of 15, Candace started experimenting with drugs. Initially, it was the normal thing of marijuana, and then she would try this and try that. That experiment would last for 10 years. She was in and out of rehabs for many years. And the last two years that she was on drugs, she was shooting heroin into her veins. We practiced tough love 
and she wasn't allowed to live with us. And she ended up in a place called Hillbrow. And Peter will tell you, and Ian will tell you, that Hillbrow in, I would like to call it a God-forsaken place. I'd like to call it hell. But it's not a God-forsaken place because I know that in the midst of that hell, God spoke to Candace. Because she'd grown up knowing who God is. And so God was never far from her thoughts. One night I remember waking up, it was freezing cold. We were living in Johannesburg. It doesn't often rain in winter, but this particular night it was raining. It must have been minus one, and I didn't know where my daughter was. All I knew she was amongst, and this is not a criticism of Nigerians, please, but there are a lot of Nigerian drug dealers in Elbra. Many. The cops are all on the take. I know because I've watched in those streets looking for my daughter. I remember waking up one morning about two o'clock. And uh, I prayed this to God. I said, listen, God, you haven't been listening to me for a while now. Some of you have been there before. If you haven't, you will get there. And that's not a prophetic word, it's just reality. (laughs) I said to the Lord, I said, God, I don't know if Ken is going to live or die. But just promise me one thing. That something good will come out of this journey that Candace and I am on. The next day I thought, well, I can't just ask God and abdicate my responsibilities. So I took a week off and I went to a little quiet spot called Arniston. And I wrote a manual for young people called Breakthrough. It wasn't, it, and it isn't, an anti-drug program. It's really to teach young people principles and values and help them to find a dream for their life and help them to identify those things that will torpedo their dream. You see, you can tell young people you shouldn't do this, you shouldn't do that. I mean, you can tell adults that. Every time somebody has a packet of cigarettes, it says, this stuff will kill you. And somehow we have blinkers on and we still smoke. Now, I'm not speaking about you guys smoking cigars. That's okay. Um, (laughs) I'm not quite there yet, but... (laughs) Lekker (laughs) brier. And I I wrote this program for young people, and I did nothing with it because it just wasn't the right time. My daughter was on the streets of Hillbrow. One day I got a phone call, and it was Candace. By the way, even though I, I practiced tough love, and I said to a couple yesterday, tough love is not abandoning your daughter. I would go into Hillbrow, into this hell, every week or maybe once every 10 days, and have lunch with my daughter. It was probably the only decent meal she had in the week. I never gave her money because I realized I had become an enabler And I was part of the problem and not part of the solution. For any parent who has to 
practice tough love, it's probably one of the hardest things you'll ever have to do. One day she phoned me, she said, Dad, I'm going to die. By the way, the times that I did have lunch with her, I would drive 100 meters down the road, park my car, and cry my eyes out because every time I saw her, I didn't know if I'd see her again. I said, yes, Candace, you are going to die, but you're the only one who can do something about that. And somewhere in the story, there's a whole book, and I, won't, I don't have the time to go into detail. But miraculously, Candace and I found each other in a shopping center, and it is a long story. But there was a day that she jumped into my car, and we were able to drive out of Hilbra for the last time. And her journey to recovery had started, which was a painful journey for her and for the rest of the family, but particularly for her, because she was the one who had to kick the habit. Soon after that, I decided to do something with Breakthrough, and Candice and I chatted about it, and I said, Lovey, are you okay with us using your story? Because people need to know about, you know, one of the problems with addiction and drugs, I mean, I, I never hid that fact. In fact, all over the world, when I would speak, I would say, you know, I'm dealing with this issue, with, because I felt that the power of this thing is in its secrecy. You know, there are people who are dealing with this stuff on a daily basis, and they don't know who to speak to. And by the way, many churches don't know how to handle people whose kids. There's almost like this, oh, you, you, I promise, it's the weirdest thing. Like nobody, very few people would come up to me and say, hey, Paul, how's your daughter doing? Because they know what the answer is, so they don't ask. But they would never cease to tell you how great their children are and how now they're at this university and they got 25 A's and you know, <laughs> made the first. <laughs> and you're sitting there and like, you just don't say anything. And we do need to have an understanding what people are going through. I apologize. I've taken my watch off. Please tell me when I've got five minutes. Am I still Okay. I decided it was time that we did something with Breakthrough and we set up One Million Strong. I uh, initially, when we set it up, and I can honestly say this, I thought maybe we'd reach a couple of hundred kids. You know, it was something that we'd start working in schools. And uh, maybe what I didn't realize is just how hungry young people are to learn about principles and values. You see, the problem we have in society today, and you will understand this in America, the Bible was thrown out of the schools a number of years ago. The problem is we never substituted that with something else. The institutionalized church stood there with their placards and tried to stop this thing from happening But that's not what is needed. We need something. We need an alternative as to how we can teach kids principles and values. And so what we've done in One Million Strong is we've created three different manuals or three different programs. Kind of like looks like that. I didn't do the artwork, by the way. Um, But this 
Breakthrough is aimed for kids between 11 and 14. Breakthrough Extreme, this one, is aimed for kids between sort of 15 and 18. And then we've just launched a new program called Launch, which is for kids who've now finished with school and they may be in college and in universities. But there's three things we focus on, primarily. There's other things as well, like how to work with money, etc. But there's primarily three things. The one is principles, the, the, the wisdom of the ages. How can we take something away and not get... The kids today don't know what's right or wrong. Everything is about relativity or your own interpretation. And of course, linked with that is many parents are not modeling or teaching the kids the values. It's not the government's responsibility. If you read Deuteronomy, it talks about you as a parent teaching your child. Write it on their foreheads so that they can't forget it. Because when they understand what a principle is and that you can't break it, but you break yourself against the principle because the principle is bigger than you and it's universal and it's eternal, maybe they'll think about what they're doing. But today they've got no foundation. What about values? Why aren't we teaching our children values? Sustainable values that have kept society going for hundreds, if not thousands of years. And even we as adults are messing with that value system. Because our our politics all over the world, whether it's politics or whether it's racism or whether it's sport or whatever it is, it's like if you're for this side, you're for this side and you end up hating those on this side. And we, we don't even respect each other's opinions anymore. In fact, we don't even want to talk to each other. So whatever the political party is, if somebody stands up and says, I'm a de- Democrat, half the people don't believe what he's going to say anyway. <laughs> even though it might be wrapped in real truth. But it's, no, no, he's a de- oh, we don't listen to that. We don't listen. It's the devil speaking. And vice versa. But remember, we're teaching our kids that. Teaching our kids that. Countries like Canada, where you can't call somebody male or female anymore. The government decides that you have to ask the person, can I call you ma'am or can I call you sir? Weird stuff. Our young people today, there was an issue in the UK where the ladies who felt they were gay wanted to shower with the boys. I'm sure there are many boys that would have liked that. <laughs> and it had nothing to do with, with, with anything else other than vision or sight. But that's the stuff we're dealing with today. I mean, Really? As I said, I didn't know how many kids we would reach. By God's grace, more and more and more, to the extent where we're working in Malawi, Kenya, Uganda, Honduras, South Africa. We're launching Bulgaria next year and Sweden next year. 
And all I can say is that it's not me. Because I don't know how to do that. I suppose I have some knowledge of building a brand. But I can't, I, I don't know people. I never met anybody in Honduras. I'm going there to, tomorrow for the first time to spend time with them. And Candace and I have spoken many times and although in the last while she wasn't that involved because she was raising two little ones, she had a job. But about three months ago, maybe four months ago, we went away for a weekend with our girls and the grandchildren and I said to Candy, we were just walking, I said, my lovey, you're not looking good. You've lost weight. Are you okay? And she said, Dad, I haven't been feeling well. She phoned me when she got back and she said, I've made an appointment with a doctor. Because she said she'd been to her doctor a few times, but that particular doctor hadn't sent her for tests. Long story short, they sent her in for observation and tests. And uh, Candace, as you can see from the photo there, she was tiny. And they found a 15-centimeter tumor on her left kidney. They told us it was going to be complicated because of the arteries and that the tumor had been there quite a while. A week later, she went in for the op. They live in a place called Plett. We went to Joburg. And probably the hardest toughest seven weeks of my life started to unfold. In seven weeks, Candace had nine operations. She ended up losing her small intestine and her stomach. And they were doing some may she literally became a guinea pig of modern surgery, etc., etc. Twice during that time, we'd been told to say goodbye to Candace, which we did. And yet, we underestimated how hard Candace was prepared to fight. The hospital was like blown away, like this child is just like hanging in there. She, she fought hard. But we were speaking to people all over, and I kept Sam in the loop, and I was writing just an update, because otherwise you get 500 phone calls. And the one article I wrote was the fighter because she'd fought her whole life. Because even when she came out of drug addiction, she, doesn't, she didn't do a half job about it. There was no gray area. In she rehabilitated entirely. I was at the hospital the Tuesday and uh, Alex wasn't there. I think I wouldn't know how many hours I've spent in hospitals over the, the last couple of months or so. And the doctor came to me and she said, look, Alex is not here. And he was struggling. He was really struggling. And she, she said to me, there's nothing more we can do for Candy. The hard part came when Alex and I had to tell her, imagine saying to your own daughter, Love you, you've done everything you can. But I'm sorry. I think the thing that blew me away was the fact 
that Candace was just so gracious. She took control of that ICU room. Thank you. She started telling the nurses what they must do. She started telling Alex and I what we need to do with the grandchildren. And this was with pipes, and you have no idea what it looked like. She even started telling us what the hall must look like, how we must decorate it. It must look like a wedding reception, she said. Flowers and balloons. The little ones were taken in and she was able to say goodbye to them. And for three days later, she passed away. Out of all of this, I think I ended up against the ropes. I, uh, I don't know if I was angry with God. I just don't understand. I don't know if I understand. I don't know if I'll ever understand. But there's a couple of things that just are so rich out of this experience. And that I'm, I don't know if grateful is the right word, maybe thankful. But I want to acknowledge God for, first of all, giving me Candace and allowing me that journey with my daughter. The other thing I want to thank God for is that I didn't have to bury her because she died in Hillbrow with a syringe in her arm. Because I don't know how I would live with that. The service was amazing. And she has a legacy. The other thing I was grateful for was that I could spend time with her saying goodbye to her. The last thing I remember before she became... Uh, went back into a coma was us worshipping Jason Upton Psalm 23 if you've never listened to it do yourself a favour and other songs and although Candace couldn't speak properly she was mouthing the words I'll never forget that Wednesday that I spent with Candace and lastly The very last thing she did is when we were leaving, she went like this. And she couldn't talk properly. She was going into a coma. And Liz was with me. And we were trying to say, what are you saying, Libby? What are you saying? And we worked. I said to her, one million strong. And she said, yes. And then she calls the nurse and they had to... So she, she, all she said to me is, make it happen, Dad. Make it happen. So I'm here to say, I think I'm still on the ropes. But you know what? I'm committed to reaching the lives of, I don't know how many children, I don't care. I do care. But I don't care about the number. But I just pray that we can reach as many young people as possible. Because right now, 
They need your help. They need my help. Thank you.